I found myself um, stepping into my mom's shoes in certain ways, you know, and trying to relive and see what she saw. And I cried and I laughed and I created characters to try to piece things together. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. In this episode, we continue the theme of Season 3, Generation 1.5, a term used to describe people who immigrated here as children. Uh, I was willing to do whatever I could if it meant not shopping online, not, you know, getting rid of all my shoes and and not traveling, whatever it took uh, to really get this book out. I can't remember how or when I met Amy Lee, but when I did, we instantly connected. We had a few things in common. Similar to me, she came to America at a very young age. She was five years old and too young to fully understand what had happened. Everything she knows today has been a journey of trying to piece her story together through other people. Amy grew up as the only child raised by a single mom. And in 2017, when her mom passed away, Amy's world shattered, but a new one had opened up. To honor her mom's legacy, Amy quit her job in corporate America to write her mom's story. She gave birth to me when she was 35, so that was fairly old uh, uh, for for them. She also married late, and I think part of it is because she was such an independent soul. um, She didn't want to be tethered down to anything. But, you know, she definitely wanted to have a family, and mostly she wanted to have a daughter. Snow in Vietnam is Amy's debut novel named after her mother, Thuyk, which means snow in Vietnamese. The youngest of seven, a woman who married later in life at age 34 and had her first child at 35. And as I read each page, I would turn to the next, feeling more and more connected to this independent, free-spirited woman. When my father came into the picture and uh, my grandfather was like, you need to marry him kind of thing. She was like, okay, I'll, you know, she submitted to that because she really wanted to start a family. And so the couple got married. And shortly after, Amy was born in July 1974, a little baby girl named Le Ngoc Tui Ting. She was working at the bank at the time. It was a war that happened, was happening for so long that when it finally ended, she was um, worried that, you know, that the regime would change overnight. And what she told me was that things kind of were normal for a while. Things didn't change right away. Amy's father left Vietnam in 1975, but her mother chose to stay. But then there was more and more starvation, more and more limited uh, ability to move freely. You know, people were disappearing. <laughs> um, so yeah, things started to change. She really relied on my dad to take care of the family. So she didn't work for a while. And of course, when he left, uh, it was everybody coming together to figure out, you know, how are they going to make it? 
She didn't really talk to me very much about um, her life. I think part of it is maybe it's post-traumatic stress syndrome where, you know, there's just so much going on and it's something that she'd rather forget. You know, raising me as a child was tough. Uh, I was sick. I was born with a hole in my heart and had a heart murmur. Amy's heart condition was so severe that the doctors predicted she would not live past the age of five. And so between the fear of, you know, me dying and the fear of the communist soldiers and just making it day to day, it was, I can imagine that angst and that anxiety building up all the time for her. She ended up selling Western medicine that the soldiers had left behind or some contraband stuff that she had found. And uh, she didn't really go into detail in terms of how she got her hands on those things. But uh, she told me that, you know, she would go with my uncle, Uncle Seven, and they would ride together from city to city. Usually it's from Trevin to Saigon and back. And she would hide the stuff and try to sell it for, you know, whatever she can get for it. And I think over the years uh, before we finally left, she had increasingly gotten more brazen and risky about selling the Western medication. I think it started to get into drugs as well, probably marijuana, opiates, whatever she can find. Um, my mom had tried several times to escape. There were no resources in Vietnam, so so many people were starting to escape the country that she thought she would take that risk as well. So she thought, you know, if I can get there, I can get the medical attention and save my daughter's life, and that's, that's why we left. So did she tell you how it happened? She didn't tell me how it happened, but my cousin did because we escaped together with my cousin Tree. Tree um, was 14, I think, at the time. He told me that we just got up in one morning and the three of us were getting on a cyclo to go to another city under the guise of my mom, um, you know, getting a teaching job somewhere and uh, he was gonna help her settle in to this new place. And he told me that that morning, you know, his parents were just crying and he didn't understand why they were crying. And he told me that we went from village to village. We were dressed in different layers and was um, shedding our clothes, you know, so that we wouldn't get recognized or anything like that. You know, he said he, that we also came to this uh, village where this uh, old man was feeding us some food, just kind of keeping us occupied until another person came to retrieve us and take us to another place. And we ended up hiding in a jungle that night. We were really afraid that we would get caught. I think we were a group of uh, three or four other groups that were supposed to rendezvous together. And uh, the other groups got caught, including one of the, uh, the captains of the boat. When we finally did get onto the boat, though, uh, that was a little scary, according to my cousin. He said that we were all hiding underneath the, the lower deck of the boat and cruising through, and he could hear AK-47s just firing at us, you know, and it seemed to last forever. My cousin said I was always looking sick and either really blue or really pale. They would always look over to make sure I was still breathing. I think we were on the open seas for five days, four nights. So one of the engines died on the boat and we were drifting for a while and we came up to uh, one of the island sides of the Indonesian islands. And it was a pretty exciting moment apparently because we thought that we were going to have some safe haven um, but instead, the military gave us uh, a little bit of rice 
they actually towed us or pulled us out or out to sea. And but then, you know, we were worried that the other engine would die as well. And we'd be drifting out there where there's Thai pirates and sharks and everything else that we can imagine. So at night, um, we ended up going to the other side of the island and um, waiting until nightfall. And we slowly made our way to shore, burned our boat. We burned the boat because we thought, okay, if there's nowhere we, for us to go, the, the officials will have to let us stay, right? Um, and they would, it would buy us time to give us some time to, for them to figure out what they're going to do with us. And in the meantime, we get to, to be on land. And Eventually, they were sent to Galang Refugee Camp in Indonesia. The time that we were at the refugee camp was pretty horrific in terms of a lot of people dying. And as many people that were dying, there was also people or babies that were being born on the island as well. In March 1980, they were sponsored and resettled to Washington State. They moved to a city outside of Seattle. My cousin said when we first got to Kent, every face was white, you know, like you couldn't find an Asian soul anywhere. It's actually pretty lonely and sparse and um, not a lot going on at the time. There was only one Asian market, uh, which was on the other side of I-5. And so to get there was a challenge. Um, so we ate a lot of American foods in the beginning. It's now more diverse, but at the time, very much a Caucasian populace. I definitely remember my sponsors, Mr. and Mrs. Van Zwoll. Uh, I don't remember their first names because I've always called them Mr. and Mrs. Van. She was kind of a little home, homely looking, uh, super sweet and really good at sewing and baking, you know, great homemaker. And then Mr. Van, he was this humongous, bigger than life kind of guy, super tall, super barrel chested, hearty laugh, you know, had this scruffy beard. And we went to this Presbyterian church uh, every Sunday. I do remember the pastor there. He would come and visit and check on us and see how we're doing. And just a, a lovely community is what I remember feeling. And how do you think your mom was adjusting? I think the fact that she did know English and she was an independent and educated woman that uh, helped her to transition a little bit better. You know, she was obviously fighting for a better life for her family. So that kept her motivated. But she was older. She was 40. I can't imagine starting life over in a new country at 40. And then we uh, moved into our own apartment in Kent, Washington. It was a government subsidized apartment. It was a pretty cool place to be because there were a lot of kids there. And I remember making friends and playing in the community there. In August, shortly after her sixth birthday, Amy was rushed to Seattle Children's Hospital for open-heart surgery. I guess I had collapsed and fallen down a flight of stairs uh, outside of our building, apartment building, and uh, was rushed to the hospital. Of course, Mr. and Mrs. Van were there, the whole family was there, and um, my mom was quite worried. But what timing, right? Like, imagine if that had happened when you were in Vietnam. I know. At that age and collapse. I mean, I don't know if your mom would have been able to find medical care. I think through the, the good grace of God. So Tree was living with us in the beginning, but then, you know, he, he was really not adjusting well, being that he was a teenager. 
learning English and starting over in high school was was really tough for him. So he actually dropped out of school and would walk everywhere, uh, not necessarily looking for trouble, but just looking for something to do. He ended up finding a, a group of people to play soccer with. And eventually he left the home and wandered off to find his own job. And he was living from couch to couch, you know, so he would call in every once in a while to check, uh, check with us. But my mom never knew where he was going to be at. So tell me about your relationship with your mom. What was that like? It was challenging when I was a kid because I had these American ideals. You know, I was very Americanized. Uh, I spoke English and she it would frustrate her because she would try to reel me back to learning uh, how to read and write Vietnamese. And every time she'd try, I'd give up. I was very stubborn and I was a contrarian. So, I, you know, it was probably hell for her um, trying to be a single mom and navigate her way through a new life uh, in the new society. But one thing that I will say is that as spiteful or, you know, unkind as I can be as a kid, she always gave me endless love. You know, it was just only the two of us really growing up because obviously my dad wasn't there and Tree had gone on to do his own thing. Uh, my mom remarried and we ended up uh, leaving Seattle area, went to Orange County to the uh, Westminster area. At the end of ninth grade, my stepdad and I just, we, we couldn't see eye to eye. He surprised me and actually had packed my bags and drove me to San Marcos, California, this family's house that he knew and dropped me off. In ninth grade was when she and I parted ways. I finished school there for a year. When I was done with 11th grade, I decided that I wanted to go back to Seattle finish my uh, high school years. Yeah, my mom and I didn't reunite again until she left my stepdad and moved back to Seattle to live with me. Do you mind if I ask if you had had any contact with your dad, your biological dad, and what that was like? Yeah, so when we lived in Seattle, there was a man that showed up every once in a while. Um, and at first I didn't know who he was. You know, it was just a, another friend. And it was really weird because you know, he would show up out of the blue once in a while and he would try to be a dad. He would try to discipline me. He would try to tell me, give me advice. And of course, I was like, who are you and who are you to tell me these things, you know? And so it was really hard because I didn't realize at the time, but I had to help him or teach him to be a dad to me. And I was not good at that at all. And I was also very selfish. Like, this is my mom. Nobody gets her but me, you know? So he, he came in and out every once in a while. Um, we didn't actually have a relationship until after my mom passed. After I graduated from college and I was living in an uh, apartment by myself, uh, my mom was with me and my dad wanted to come and visit. So I was like, all right, come and visit, whatever. You can hang out at our place. And he was there, I think, for one or two weeks. Um, and at that time, he was still with his uh, wife, Lynette. Um, but it was the first time that I understood, really, that there's a father in my, that I have a dad, you know, and he's got his whole life in Texas. And I learned a little bit about my um, half-siblings. Um, there's two brothers and two sisters. And I really 
wanted to connect with them. So I, I got them Christmas presents. It wasn't received very well, apparently, <laughs> because they didn't know about me and they didn't know about my mom. But at one point, my best friend was uh, in Texas. So I flew down to, and I don't, honestly don't remember how this came about, but I reached out to my dad to see how things were going. Um, and my brother, my oldest brother, Tim, Timothy, contacted me. He must have gotten my number through my dad. And he said, hey, you're not very far from Houston. Why don't you come and meet the family? At least I would like to meet you. So I was like, wow, okay. So he bought me um, a ticket to go from Dallas to Houston. He picked me up at the airport. It was bizarre as heck. <laughs> um, it was strange because, you know, I had never met him and he looked just like my dad. It was so weird, um, but more Americanized because he was mixed. Um, but we got into his convertible, drove to a house where they lived. And that was also weird because I'm sitting there with my stepmom, Lynette, and Tim, right? Never met these people in my entire life. Uh, in comes uh, Ted and Tammy and Tanya. So did your dad get married later when he came to Texas? No. So my dad was a very uh, educated guy, and he actually won a scholarship to study in the United States for a few, I don't know, less than a year, but... He ended up meeting Lynette um, while in the States, and she fell madly in love with my dad. And when his thing was over and he went back to the to Vietnam, um, and again, this is the middle of the war, right? War is going on, and she decides that she can't live without him. This is my dad's version of the story. Um, she bought a one-way ticket to Saigon to look for my dad. In the middle of a war? Yes. <laughs> Christmas. Oh my God! <laughs> I have mad respect for this woman. She is an incredible woman, but as smart as she was, uh, she was a little crazy, crazy in love. Um, but she went, she found him. They ended up getting married there in Vietnam, and that's where Tim was born. And then when the war, right before the war ended, uh, she took you know her family back to the states. My dad lived a double life, um, you know, in Trevin, it was with my mom, and in Saigon, it was with Lynette. And Tim and I were born, I think the same year. We were, or at least pretty darn close. But my mom didn't know about Lynette until right before he left the country. You know, he was trying to get us to come uh, to go with him. And uh, she said, no, you know, see ya, and we'll figure it out on our own kind of thing. And after they left, my dad did write home and he tried to, you know, get my mom sponsored over. I don't know the whole story there, but she she can be stubborn too and, and you know, try to find things on her own. Yeah, crazy, right? She was complaining about neck pain for a while, right? And I thought, well, maybe you just slept wrong or you have a kink in your neck, whatever. But it was persistent. We ended up going to the doctors. They did scans and they found out that she uh, had, uh, she was fourth stage lung cancer. And they said, well, you know, we think you'll have about a year to live. So, you know, we made the most of that year and I was uh, determined to do everything I could. She was on CBD oil. She was, you know, drinking all these terrible green smoothies that I was making for her, um, you know, doing everything we can to survive this thing. And in December 
we decided that she wanted to just do one last trip and do something fun. So we actually went to Vegas, celebrated New Year's there. At that time, she was also having a little bit of Alzheimer's. After that trip was when things went downhill really fast. January, she was in hospice care. In February, she was gone. So my dad called me and he said, hey, I've been trying to get a hold of your mom. She hasn't been picking up. She hasn't been calling me back. And I just blurted it out. Tracy, I said, she's dead. I was so angry at him. So I didn't care to soften the blow. He was driving at the time and he said, I'll call you back. And he didn't call me back for days. And he finally called me back and he said, how did it happen? You know, and we started talking from there. And when we reconnected it in person, it was me driving down to Texas with uh, two friends because I was helping my friend relocate. And I was like, do you guys mind if I visit my dad really quick? And so when he opened up the door and saw me standing there, he just cried. And the first thing he said was, I'm sorry. And he just cried and hugged me. So it just, you know, you start to forgive and just let it go. So when she passed, I, of course, was devastated and um, quit my job. And I thought that the best way to honor her and to memorialize her memory and the sacrifices that she made was to write a book about her life. But because I didn't have all the pieces, um, I fictionalized it, did a lot of uh, interviewing with, you know, war veterans and boat refugees. Of course, my cousin was uh, a huge source for me. And uh, it took me two years to write the book. And uh, Snow in Vietnam is about Leng Altwik, her journey and her struggles. Uh, writing is definitely therapeutic. Uh, I've never written, you know, I wasn't planning on necessarily being a published author. Um, I did learn about really what the Vietnamese diaspora was all about, that so many of us have the same stories. And it's important to preserve that history because it's something that we don't really learn about as, as we were growing up. I found myself um, stepping into my mom's shoes in certain ways, you know, and trying to relive and see what she saw and I cried and I laughed and I, you know, created characters to try to piece things together. Like I didn't know how my mom got her Western medicine to sell. So I created a character that would be her, you know, provider. It definitely brought me closer to my mom and, and to my cousin. We didn't talk very much growing up because he was a teenager doing his own thing and his Vietnamese and my English, you know, were just you should listen to some of our interviews. It's hilarious because <laughs> he speaks Vietnamese and I'm like, huh, Can, how do you spell that? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, and I have my Google Translate and everything, but uh, it, was, it was funny trying to piece the conversation together to have a holistic view of our journey here. Do you know if your parents kept in touch when he had left? Like, is that how you guys knew he was in Texas? My mom had said that he did write, and uh, but she ignored all his letters. She never wrote back. Even when we were at the refugee camp, she knew that he was trying to get a hold of us. Um, and at that point, she was ready to just move on. I think she probably had that mentality of, I, I made it this far without you. I knew. Imagine what it would be like to have tagged along with Lynette. 
One of the things that's in my book too is, is trying to understand what my mom may have been feeling or thinking at the time. And yeah, to like, what are you gonna do? Like live, you know, in the States and he's gonna have two wives and it's like, it's, yeah, just the idea of it is, is kind of ridiculous, so. So this is shared in your book? Yes. And um, is your dad okay with that? Yes. How much interviewing or involvement in your research was he? None. I, you know, right before I published the book, I asked him, uh, are you okay with this? And I said, you are not portrayed in a very good light here. He said, that's your point of view. You're entitled to it. He said, it's also fictionalized. So he's like, I have done way worse things than whatever you could possibly put in that book. Because he fought against the French and uh, he was one of the Viet Minh, you know, soldiers. So he's, he's seen a lot. Um, so I had his blessing. And when it was published, I sent him a copy. He hasn't read it yet. The reason why is because he says it just drums up so much memory, so many memories and so much heartache and guilt. Yeah, writing her was um, was quite a quite a challenge at times. Um, but I felt like having all those years of my mom to myself, um, I naturally grew up to be a little bit more like her, right? And uh, so it wasn't too hard to to stay true and, and not deviate too much um, from my mom's personality and character and her story. She was always a teaser. Um, she loved to have fun and, you know, she always wanted to make things bright and happy and cheerful. It took losing her mother for Amy to discover her passion for writing. Her second novel, Snow in Seattle, the sequel, will be released on Amazon on August 31st. My advice would be to take the time, listen to what your, you know, parents or your grandparents are, are saying, listen to their stories and uh, not forget them. Time is very fleeting and uh, very finite. That's the one advice I would give is to just take the time. If you'd like more details on the books or to connect with Amy directly, follow our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 22. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.